We're living ever longer and healthier lives. Are we ready? Our extra decades impact everything from careers and couples to companies and countries. The old three-course meal of education, work, and retirement is morphing into a four-quarter feast. So how does knowing we're likely to have more life impact our thinking and planning for the journey? And how are companies adapting as both talent and consumers get older? I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and this is Four Quarter Lives. Susan Wilner-Golden is the founder and director of the DCIX initiative at Standardford Distinguished Careers Institute, or DCI, a program similar to the one I did at Harvard, chummily called the ALI, which she undertook in 2016. She recently published Stage Not Age, a book published by Harvard Business Review Press, and will help us understand how companies are thinking and innovating around what she has calculated is a $22 trillion longevity opportunity. I'll also explore how thinking about life in what she calls five quarters, she's more ambitious than me and is planning to live well past 100, has impacted her own life and career plans. Susan Golden, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted you could join us. I'm so delighted to be speaking with you today. So fantastic new book that's just out that we will recommend. I will at the end say that our listeners can have a special discount code that I will share with them, but you got to listen until the end. But the book is called Stage Not Age. But before we jump into what it's all about, can I first just get a little bit of your personal backstory? How and when did you get interested in this whole topic of longevity? Why? Share a bit of your life story. Absolutely. I started my career in public health, got a doctorate from Harvard School of Public Health, and was an academic for many years and did a lot of work in health policy. And then I pivoted. I often say back then it was called selling out, and today it's just (laughs) called pivoting. At what age and stage did you do that? I pivoted when I was in my very early 30s, and I went to the private sector, went to a baby biotech company called Genentech who's blossomed in so many wonderful ways. Absolutely, yeah. But it was a a rare opportunity to see how a young company grows and all the ups and downs. And I worked for a phenomenal person, Bob Swanson, who's basically the founder of the biotech industry, and learned a lot about how companies have to grow and and meet the needs. And I could feel good about our products because they were helping people new biotechnology. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to attend Harvard Business School, had a mini MBA program called the Program for Management Development, which really was a great supplement to my academic background. But there are many parallels in many ways between research in academia and starting a new company. And from there, I had the incredible opportunity to join a venture capital firm that specialized in life sciences and became a partner there. And I did that as long as I could until I was having babies. And this is before Zoom and before all the technology that we have today. But partner meetings, I was uh, head of the West Coast office. We're often in New York, sometimes in London. And that was hard with little babies. So like many women at that time, I took a career break, thinking it would be for a few short years till my youngest goes off to school. And along the way, I had a widowed elderly mother who began declining. And wound up involved in caregiving, not solely. So you were, you were child care and elder care sandwiched. Yes, uh, which is a common yeah. phenomenon. But I didn't know that. And I never thought of myself as a caregiver for either my children or my mother. I thought of I'm being a daughter and a mom, like many, many people. After my mother died and my youngest was going off to 
college, I reflected on it. I thought, here I speak English. I know the U.S. healthcare system really well, and I couldn't navigate it for my own mother. And if it's like that for me, what's it like for other people? And I began to do some research and found out there are 48 million unpaid caregivers in the U.S. alone taking care of older adults. And they too- And what percentage of them are women? The vast majority, well over 60 to 65% are women. And as we saw in COVID, they could not do both. It is not possible to do both. So they wound up taking career breaks. And it really began making me understand we need to fix elder care and we need to fix our broken non-system, at least in the U.S. You have a better one abroad, but we not don't. Not to mention have... child care. We might as well yeah, throw it all to, in together, child, right? All of that, all of that. <laughs> and just at that time, this is seven years ago, I learned about in a phenomenal new program that Stanford was offering called the Distinguished Careers Institute. And I was fortunate enough to be accepted into the second class. And I know you have just completed a phenomenal program at Harvard that was, yep. has and they're all called the same. You got you got DCI and I got ALI. Yes. <laughs> Chicago is uh, now offering LSI. So. Right. And there are many that are being proliferated, which I actually think will become the norm. And we can talk yeah. about that later. But in that program, I learned about longevity. I was oh, not wow. just okay, elder care, okay. but longevity was a very core part of the DCI program. And I began working with the Center on Longevity And there I found out people are going to be living 100-year lives. My children, your children need to plan on that. If you live to 65, you have more than a 50% chance living into your 90s. But we don't all just want more lifespan. We want health span. And I began to understand from the research that was being done, both at the center and at the medical school and around Stanford, there wasn't enough innovation being started to support this. And I began talking to my VC friends, why aren't you investing in this? And they all stereotyped it. It's senior housing, it's fall prevention, medication management, and everybody over 65. All the sad, boring stuff, yeah. Yeah, and I said, no, 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 this is an exciting, amazing opportunity for innovation, and it's an enormous economy. There's something called the longevity economy. There's something called the care economy. I had never heard of those terms before. And so this really captured my imagination. So a complete wake up by going back to school. Going back to school. And suddenly all the different things I had done in my career, public health, venture capital, caregiving, taking a career break, all came together around this new phenomenon. And it's a very exciting field. It it really is something to look forward to. I do want to fix elder care. I'm working on that in some of the (laughs) initiatives I'm doing now. I partner with Pivotal Ventures and Techstars Future of Longevity Accelerator, where I've served as a lead mentor there for the past three years. And it's focused solely on developing new companies to support caregivers of older adults. So I feel like we're making a dent in that area. I'm now teaching a course on longevity, the business implications and opportunities at the Stanford Business School. I co-teach it with the head of the Center of Longevity and one of the GSB professors. And that all led to the book, How fantastic. bringing it all together. So, so your, your, your fourth journey. or fifth career um, yeah. <laughs> that you are done. And more to, yeah, 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 we're only just starting, I can right. see. Now that, right. now that I know that I have, you know, 30, 40 more years to go, why not? Absolutely. It's a long runway and you're just starting. So where did the idea and the title particularly for the book, so stage and then in parenthesis, not age, come from? What are you reacting to and who are we writing for? There were two things that happened. One is I looked around during my DCI fellowship year, sitting in the classroom was me and other DCI fellows. And we ranged from our 50s to our 80s. 
but also in the classroom were people in their 20s and 30s. And I realized we're all on the same stage. It didn't matter what age we were. We were all being continuous learners, lifelong learners. We were rethinking our life purpose. You know, we particularly, mostly, I was mostly in classes with graduate students, resetting our life priorities. And I realized we were no different. Our ages didn't matter. It was what stage we were in. So that excited me. And then I began to talk to people and too many people, VC people, marketers, we're putting everybody in a 65 and older as the same, one bucket yeah, or, or 70 or 75. It didn't matter what demarcation, but everybody was a retiree or elderly or senior. And that all meant sort of like declining and, and headed towards the end, <laughs> rather than thinking of this as this whole renaissance period, this whole new stage of life. We have an extra 30 years to think about what we want to and how to use it. And I began to realize No, we should not define people solely by their age. I mean, age is a marker sometimes, but it's a disservice to this new phenomenon that people are living much greater vibrancy in their lives, anywhere from 50 to 100 that people traditionally didn't think about. And so I began to think, let's let's find out if you worked on stage and marketing to stage and defining the products and needs by stage rather than by what age people were, you would have much more innovation, much more diversity. And then I began looking at companies who were using stage as their approach to market segmentation and defining market needs. And they were very successful. And I profile many of them in the book. We both come, actually, interestingly, to this idea of four quarters. You're you're into five quarters, so you're going to explain your math to me a little bit. Right. Um, I know it's funky math. (laughs) It's funky math, and you're going to explain to it. And so is that what how would you explain and break down those five quarters or sure. are those the stages you're referring to and how do you define no. them? So when I began to think about it, you need a framework to understand yep. the hundred year life and we didn't have any and I didn't know about your four quarters. But what I began to think is we have to think about a hundred year life. So uh, yep. initially you could divide a hundred by four and have four quarters. But I realized we're also going to be living extra beyond 100. So that's where I came up with the concept, we need five quarters. We don't know what that next quarter is going to look like. We have a kind of a sense between one and 100, but 100 plus is a whole new phenomenon and it could be 125. We don't know how long so, it's going so, to go. So give me a little recap because you you are best situated at both at Stanford and with your VC background. How seriously do you take all this law, you know, extension of life into the really significantly longer? How many more quarters are we going to get? And who's doing all of this? Yes. Yeah, so I'm confident we can get to 100 because we are getting to 100. Yeah. And that is as a result of good nutrition, public health practices, medical care. I mean, this has been the phenomenon of a success yeah. um, in, of the 20th century, basically. Absolutely. And now we're reaping the benefits in the 21st century. First century we're getting into. Yep. But the, the, the fifth quarter is what's where biotechnology and science is looking at. And I, and that's a whole other industry uh, that my book does not focus on. It's a significant industry. People are looking at metformin. They're looking at all rapamycin, all sorts of things. Um, and, the, and I do think life will be extended, but what you really want is health span. And that's what we don't know yet. If the hundred plus are going to have health span as well as we see about many people that we, you know, that are promoted. 
But I think what I was trying to focus on, even in the 100-year life, even within those yep. first four quarters, and there might yep. be a fifth, there might be a sixth, we don't know. We can, we can, we can prepare ourselves, but for the moment, if we could just Forget manage the, the f- 100, that would be good. Right. And the traditional way of looking at, at the time period of life, particularly when life expectancy was till 65, was three quarters, learn, yep. earn, and then retire. Yeah. And retirement at 65 made sense if your life expectancy was going to be you know, one or two years afterwards. <laughs> but now that life expectancy has definitely changed, a three-stage life no longer makes sense. And that's where I began to add to the framework a multi-stage life. And those stages in your first quarter, some of them may be repeated again in your third and fourth quarter, like learning. I think we're going to be continuous learners, yeah. lifelong learners. Throughout every quarter, you're going to need to be. There's no way my education, as wonderful as it was that in my 20s and my 30s, could have lasted me for a 60-year career span. Well, and you now, did three dips, didn't you? Yes. You're a good example of education that re- re- I did, returns. and along yeah. the way, I did fellowships. And this fellowship, this most recent one at Stanford, was so rejuvenating, so exciting. I learned so much. My brain was on fire, and I learned about a whole new field that I didn't know existed. It is really funny. I think that's what people really don't get until you see it in action, like you just described, is how excitable a group of, yeah, mostly 50 and 60-year-olds can get when they go back into a classroom and start having this smorgasbord or feast of learning again. And they are far more enthusiastic, I think, than many of the 20-year-olds who are sitting yeah. next to them but, in class. But one of the secret ingredients, the magic ingredient, I think, to these programs is the intergenerational learning. Yeah. You become friends with people you're doing projects with. And Stanford makes you do all the projects, all the reading. You don't have to take the exams in these courses, which is, imagine how yeah, fun that Harvard is. Harvard, too. Yeah, that was totally how fun. How fun is that? <laughs> you're there just to learn. But I have now life. You know, I have new relationships with the students I, yep. I met in the program, the students I teach, and there's no greater joy than seeing them embrace this concept and that they're beginning to develop now new companies around longevity needs. And they all, often in our classroom, a lot of them have seen their parents struggle with caring for grandparents and um, older adults. And so they're very motivated. And for many of them, it's, a, it's an eye opener that they're going to have to plan a 60-year career. That's a whole new phenomenon. Um, So that was one of them also magic, being in an intergenerational environment. That's not just your own household. And I love the whole comparison of stages between the 20s and the 50s, 60s. That is a time of re-education, reinvention, rethinking. And I call that the Renaissance stage. The Renaissance stage, which I think is such a beautiful and absolutely accurate sense of what it feels like to be there. Yeah. Yeah, So that to me is the brand new stage. It's somewhere between 50 and 80. And again, age brackets will vary, but it's, it's big. It's not one year. It's not five years. It's a period of time where people are going to be in and out of learning and reassessing careers and careers are not going to be linear. I think that's going to be the norm without judgment. People are going to take career breaks in a hundred year life. There's no way you can work 60 years in a row, nor would you want to. And something really exciting just happened this past March is that LinkedIn, for the first time, enables you on your profile to designate if you've taken a career break. And you can designate what you did during that career break. It could be learning, it could be a sabbatical, or it could be for caregiving. Fantastic. Or it could be for caregiving. And that's been a huge accomplishment because people are valuing for the first time that caregivers do need time out 
Um, there's, it's in, virtually impossible to do it all at the same time. And so and that, this and is that it has a value and you learn something that might be yeah, relevant to the workplace. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. So that to me is a real uh, change in the landscape for the first time that people are going to recognize there are going to be many career transi- transitions in a hundred year life. I know you work on that in your own. And what uh, I love about what you're saying is that it's this focus. I think a lot of people hear about longer lives and think that this length is going to tack on at the end. It's just going to be old for a lot longer. And I think your insistence that it's really Q3 that's new, right? It's that 50 to 75 or 80, which is the Renaissance period that you're talking about. Yeah. And something to look forward to instead of, you know, to dread. Which is, I think, the big lesson is for a lot of people in Q2 who are trying to cram too many goals and ambitions into a relatively short career span when actually they've got this whole other period that you're pointing at to get everything done. And we know that some of the most successful companies that are started by people 50 and older are in that Absolutely. category, it's not just the young 20-year-old who drops yeah. out of college, but it's the experienced person can bring a lot of wisdom, are among the most successful entrepreneurs. And, and a fast-increasing percentage of Absolutely. entrepreneurs. So let's move now to companies. Where, where are they on this whole? A lot of people are complaining about ageism and companies not moving. I have the impression that individuals and governments are moving a little bit faster in terms of adapting to aging societies and workforces than some companies are. It doesn't yet, or it wasn't very much on the radar. So what's the reaction to your book? Are you seeing now a sea change? Where do you think they are? So there's two kinds of companies. There's the startup companies and they're they're the established companies. The startup world is just now waking up to this opportunity. More and more venture funds are getting in this area. There are specialized venture funds and looking at longevity, even specialized funds looking at caregiving and the care economy. That is a brand new phenomenon. While I was writing the book, this was happening. And so and last, weekly, what, last three years. Last three years. Yeah. COVID inspired. Right. And I have a whole section of my book, a whole chapter on the entrepreneurial opportunity. But that that is a brand new phenomenon. But recognizing that there's an enormous need and many problems to solve and many yep. services and products will be needed and money is finally coming in, but still very early. Give us a short list of the top like big areas that are being um, So there's a whole concept around age tech, all yep. the technology that will enable people to age in their own home. They call it aging in place or age thriving in place. Yep. Not, no, most people don't want to go to a senior living community. A whole new concept around housing. Intergenerational housing is a a new area of expertise and development, and then modifying homes to accommodate people as they age accordingly. There's a whole new industry, as you know, around transition planning. There will be many transitions in a hundred-year life. You may have worked as a lawyer till you were sixty-two, and then need uh, are required to leave the firm that you work for. But you have so much talent and so much wisdom. And how do you transition to new skills? You may need to upskill. But you transition to a new career. And I know lawyers who've become journalists, lawyers who've become cartoonists, high school teachers, all sorts of things. I'm just picking one traditional industry. Um, There was a great article recently in the Wall Street Journal about a physician. He was an anesthesiologist, needed to retire at age 67. And he thought about what was his favorite job prior. And he decided, yeah, I used to be a lifeguard. I love that. And he went back and trained 
physically trained how to be a lifeguard again. And now he's a lifeguard in New Jersey. And that's what we're going to see more and more of. But people need help. I mean, you can't do it alone. So there's a whole industry around young companies. And I'm seeing many exciting opportunities. Online uh, strength training programs that are tailored to the stage you're in. There's a company called Vivo that's out of the Techstars Accelerator that's very exciting. Um, there's Upside Home, which is a new housing company. Instead of moving to a senior living community, they furnish, provide you with a furnished apartment with all the concierge services you're going to need. There's a whole company called Cake just around end-of-life care and planning. Yeah, Everybody Cake is, is wonderful. I recommend it. Yep. Cake, Cake is an amazing company. What's amazing about it, it's a platform based on stage, whether you're pre-need or at-need or post-need, dealing with yep. grief and legacy. It's an amazingly fantastic company. Those are three different industries, just to name, out of a bucket of, I'd say, 20 to 25 domains. But then back to your question about existing companies, there are some who've been real leaders, LinkedIn being one, who've recognized this as a need. Um, The financial services industry was among the first to recognize the need that people are going to need a lot more money if they're living to 100 than if they were living to 65. And one of the most successful, Merrill Lynch Bank of America, reset their entire wealth management practice around different life stages. They knew, not the stages necessarily that I articulated, but that there were seven life priorities. And for each of their clients, they asked them to assess what are their life priorities right now so they can create a portfolio that matches that and reassess it, knowing that your life priorities will change in a much longer lifespan. So they've done phenomenal work and others in the financial services industry, but that's going to be a burgeoning area right now. And then all the products and services from a wellness and health perspective, like Aviva, which is an online strength training program, Bold. There are many companies that are recognizing we need longevity checkups, just like you have your annual checkup. But in your 20s, what's your strength training practice going to be to last you till you're 100? And it'll be modified, but you can't just start when you're 65 to prepare for a 100-year life. You're going to need to start much earlier. And a whole area that I'm seeing as essential to living a successful 100-year life is digital literacy. Many countries, other countries, not my country, have annual digital literacy programs for free for everybody over 50. um, The U.S. has right now a partnership between ARP and the Older Adult Technology Services to give free digital literacy training. But there's no way you can do your shopping, get your medical care, do your financial planning, order the products and services you need. Unless you're digital. Charge your electric car, which seems like a complete maze. So that's why they're offering it for free, not just once, but every year, because things are changing so rapidly. So I think that countries are doing, where is that? Denmark does that. Israel, Singapore, US does it in a little way, but it's an essential skill and financial literacy and health literacy, I think are going to follow as essential skills for hundred year lives. And you can imagine a lot of companies could help create support for this sort of thing and make it easy that not everybody's calling their grandchild. How do I do this? You know, it was a, it was that lesson of the COVID when everybody suddenly learned how to use Zoom. It's um, true. Instead. After, and, after all the stereotypes that the older folk wouldn't right. be able to get with it, they actually did it. Right. And they, may, yeah. they may not learn as quickly as somebody yeah. in their twenties, but they will learn and they want to learn. And that gets to your point that you raised about ageism, it is alive and well in companies, unfortunately. There are a lot of myths about older adults and not enough companies are addressing it. Some are. Some have taken a longevity pledge working with AARP and the World Economic Forum 
to address ageism. It's a real issue. It's subtle sometimes and not so subtle. It yeah. happens in marketing and the way they portray older adults, either as super agers versus, you know, everybody being frail, elderly, kind. there's not diversity enough in, in marketing materials and images yep. and in language. I really think we have to abandon the word retirement, elder, senior, anti-aging. Citizen. <laughs> yeah, but, but come up with new terms and I make some up in my book and I invite anybody to come yep. up. We need new, we need new language for this new whole period of life. Absolutely. There's a whole rebranding exercise that's absolutely key. And do you think, I mean, I hear a lot of comments from listeners who are just saying, yeah, but I mean, the, it's impossible to get this whole even issue onto the corporate radar. It's of no interest. They're not there yet. Not are everybody you... is. I think every company is going to need a longevity strategy. They're going to need yeah. it for their own workforce because they're going to have a five-generation workforce and they're going to find out it's beneficial. How can you possibly design good products and services for somebody older if you don't have that older person sitting around the table designing the products? So multi-generational teams have been documented to be more creative, more productive, but not enough companies are valuing it yet. So just as we took a look at how companies are sort of looking at the longevity and treating older customers, if we switched into their internal processes and talent management and how they're looking at people, what would you recommend as a longevity strategy on talent? What should they be doing? Give me three top priorities that they might want to be adjusting in terms of how they're managing people? I would start with values. There really needs to be an articulated value. Ageism is somehow seen as the last acceptable ism out ism, there. Absolutely. Um, and that's what one of the business school professors at Stanford that I work with captured that concept. And so it has to be unacceptable. It has to be part of your DEI initiatives, in which every company now has adopted, ageism has to be addressed. And that matters in terms of hiring practices, retaining practices, and language. It should be unacceptable to say, you know, certain stereotypes about people. Individuals have to stop saying if they forget something, oh, senior moment. That's a terrible thing to say. (laughs) Everybody forgets things. Everybody misplaces their keys. Um, So we all have a role to play in it. Um, and then most importantly, I think is upskilling and continuous learning. Everybody's going to need that in a company and companies should be providing it to all of their generations in the workforce. But right now in particular to their older workers, because maybe they want to continue working. They don't want to retire. They may, but they will may need additional skills, learning implications of AI in their company is a brand new weekly topic at the moment. Um, that could be so a, a lot of companies will stay. Yes. But, you know, the, the stock reaction will be yes, but older employees are much more expensive. They're they less flexible. Uh, fact, we need young thinking and new thinking. In fact, that those are two of the myths that are really dispelled because older workers want more flexibility and are willing to be flexible. They don't all want to work full time. And they do often cost less because they have Medicare, at least in the United States. So their health insurance policies will be less and they're more loyal and there is less turnover. So that has been disputed. Uh, MRSA has done an excellent report called Are You Age Ready for for companies to look at? And I highly recommend it. I recommend it in the book and the link is there. These are myths that need to be dispelled. So to the last point, what can companies do? Leadership. Leadership has to help dispel these myths. And every board should be thinking about what are going to be their longevity strategy and their longevity practices for their workforce, but as well as for their products and services. Too many companies market to the 18 to 34-year-old segment 
and don't realize that people 50 and older control 53% of spending and well over 40% of wealth. And they are missing a huge opportunity by not creating a multi-generational product. May need some modifications. In the book, I describe how BMW modified their panel and their access within their company, recognizing that the primary customer who buys their car, yes, it's young people in their advertising, but it's the 55 and older who may need some modification, but they don't want it to look any differently on the outside. These are just some stealth features. Do you think this this is an issue just of ignorance that they don't know that, you know, this segment has 40% of the purchasing power? Or is there some underlying resistance from somebody? Or is it simply that product development and marketing departments are dominated by pretty young people who are not even thinking about this stuff? I think it's a combination. I don't think it's one particular issue. And the fact that we've seen some leadership in companies, it means that it can be done. We've seen great companies hire older workers as part of their practice, standard operating procedure, but because they've been educated, there's value to it. They've seen return on investment, basically. I think it's just one more new thing for companies to integrate, but we'll see tremendous value too. And the more examples we can spotlight, like you do, like I do in the book, can take the longevity pledge that Mercer and ARP and the World Economic Forum, and it guides companies how to do it. But it takes some effort. And I think having somebody within a company that might lead this, people are talking about chief longevity officers of late, might make a whole lot of sense to Absolutely. help develop the strategy for every company. Because if this is here to stay, longevity is only <laughs> going to be increasing as we started out the conversation. It's, we are uh, getting older and of, older all around the world. With the exception of the... Uh, terrible impact of, of, of the pandemic. I mean, we have to acknowledge that life expectancy did go down these last couple of years. So I'm curious, what's your experience on this whole debate around, do we want to market and focus on older people or do we actually want just all marketing and product development and channel management to be age inclusive of everybody? Do older people want to be targeted or not targeted? Well, some products are going to be beneficial to people 65 and older, let's say. Yeah. But they don't want it to scream out, this is a product for an old person. The, the stereotype is big, beige, and boring. That, uh, <laughs> big, beige, and boring. Have, okay, I like have, that. Have captured that, you know, for like those life alerts or, or whatever. But you can market to older adults without stereotyping them. And that's what I was trying to say, that either they're like super ages, you know, they're 100 and running marathons, or they're 65 and frail, elderly and declining. Yeah, that's, you know? the, current, that's the current choice, right? That's, that's the choice. menu option right now. But, but if we had my slides to show you, there's this wonderful photo of a gentleman wearing headphones, enjoying music, but he looks older. He, you know, yep. but he's, he's enjoying life. And capturing the vibrancy in the different stages of older adults is a way to market. Your product could be the same product that you offer to an older and a younger but you might market to them slightly differently. And OXO is a great brand of kitchen utensils that was designed originally by someone for his wife who had rheumatoid arthritis. And they were very much easier to utilize. People of all ages buy that product, but it's especially beneficial, by the way, to older adults. And they don't have to market differently for the older adult, but they might capture the imagination of an older adult by you know, placing marketing where they might see it more often and a different marketing distribution channel for younger. But there's so much potential right now. There are so many products and services that are available right now that when I was caregiving, 
I often say, if only, if only I knew that there was such a thing as a care navigator. I had no idea there was that profession. And everybody's going to need a care navigator. Care navigators and death doulas. That's what's coming our way. It's complicated. Those it's are complicated, complicated. stages yep. and you need, you need help. You need help and support. Absolutely. Well, you've, you've thrown up the, a particular number of 22 trillion, I think, in factoring this size of the potential longevity economy. That's a pretty big number. So that's a number that stems from excellent research done by the AARP and the World Economic Forum. World Economic Forum. And the Economist. So they've come out with that number, 22 trillion right now worldwide and growing. In the U.S. alone, it's estimated to be 8.6 trillion. And that number represents all the products and services that older adults are using and purchasing, as well as the contributions they're making in terms of working and taxes and um, their contributions to society. This is a whole segment that 10 years ago was not labeled. The, there was no such thing as the longevity economy. But that stems from their research and I encourage everybody to look at their website. There's an international ARP organizations as well. The entire time I was caregiving, I never even thought to look at ARP for all the information they have on caregiving and planning and let alone all, all of this about yeah, transitions. Of good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Information. So it is a gigantic business opportunity. Blue ocean. It's a blue ocean of opportunity. It's a missed opportunity if every company isn't thinking about how their company could contribute and solve the problems and benefit themselves as well. So just to close, I, I'm, I can't resist. We're two women here talking and researching and writing about longevity. Are there any gender differences in how people age? Are men and women exhibiting any different expectations of stage or age? Yeah, it, it impacts women differently for a variety of reasons. We know that women often have earned less money than men at this when they reach, let's say, their 60s. Because they've often taken career breaks. Yep. And by taking a career break, you're out of the workforce. and Work part-time. And it yeah. impacts your career and it impacts your savings. So that's real. The second is women are mostly often the chief purchasing officer in their family. So yep. marketing to women makes sense for many of these products and services that are going to be needed. Women are going to need different products and services. Let's say even on financial literacy. Men traditionally have been more financially literate. There's some wonderful programs that are happening right now. Jean Chatsky has just started a new financial investing and literacy program for women. And Merrill Lynch does one and on and on more and more are recognizing women yep. need to be financially literate and how you market to them would be different. There's a wonderful organization called the Daughterhood. And anybody who's yes. ever been a caregiver and hears that word is going, Reads a sigh of relief. Somebody gets what this is about. It is traditionally women who are involved in caregiving. So marketing to women around caregiving makes imminent sense. It's not to say men and there aren't wonderful sons and husbands, and but in marketing to women around caregiving makes imminent sense. Nobody yep. ever marketed to me in my caregiving years. I was driving carpool to preschool. But if they had, that would have helped me, but they wouldn't know how to find me. So related to that, yes, it impacts women differently. And what women need from a health standpoint and strength training might be different than what men need in terms of protocols. But the essential needs are basically the same. It's just more differentiation, I would say, for 
women who are getting ready for their aging years and or helping people through their aging years. My last question, just on the gender differences, I'm very struck and I want to check if you observe this as well, that most of the people in the life extension space, the people who really want to live much longer, who aren't focusing on health span and our hundred years are mostly, if I look around, they're mostly men. Are women and men equally interested in yeah, I mean, I, living some, forever? I, there are many wonderful women scientists. In fact, one has just won the Nobel Prize. So there are many working in this area about in life extension. In terms of consumers who want to live longer, you may be right. I haven't looked at that data to say are more men interested, but more men have not figured out what I think a lot of women have, which is sort of the mantra of the DCI program, which is purpose, wellness, community. You need those three ingredients at all stages of your life. I think many women invest more time into their purpose, wellness, and community than men have traditionally. And men, often when they're leaving work, have more of an identity issue, whereas women have many different supports throughout their life stages about having community and connections. So I would leave it in that way. There's some differential, but I think I think the contributions of men and women can be the same going forward as everybody's going to be reexamining. What's this new life course going to look like? How do we achieve health span? How do we achieve purpose? How do we, do we sustain our community or create new communities? And to me, each of these, instead of being problems, become enormous opportunities and complementarities if we get them right. So, yeah. uh, Susan, thank you so much for a fascinating chug through what really does seem like an exploding, huge longevity economy opportunity all over the world. Basically, in what you're saying, every country, every sector, every gender, every age and every stage. Thank you for recognizing Uh, that. I really uh, appreciate it. So I hope all are listening. The promo code, I highly recommend Susan Golden's book, Stage Not Age. And if you type in stage 2023, you'll get the uh, pretty substantial discount that Susan has negotiated with her publisher. Yeah, Harvard Business Review Press is offering that discount to listeners today. And we will publish the link to that opportunity in the show notes. So again, Susan, thank you so much to uh, continuing to explore this opportunity with you in parallel. I wish you all the best for what is really only your third quarter, right? Only my third quarter. Yeah. And thank (laughs) you for your incredible work. It's it's been so fun to know that like there are two like minds in different parts of the world thinking about quarters. So I'm delighted to know you and for your wonderful confirmation. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.